I'm never ready. Well, neither am I. So we're two negatives and together we make a positive Roman. Or an imaginary number. All right, here we go. Uh, Rick and Morty episodes where they watch interdimensional cable. Reading Chester Brown's Ed the Happy Clown is like watching one of those shows through their entirety. Chester Brown is an indie cartoonist from Canada, also known as the Forbidden Land for us Americans that we desperately, desperately want to get into. And Brown's interests are esoteric. He's known for his graphic novel biography of the Canadian politician Louis Riel, who was instrumental in the founding of Manitoba, as well as the memoir Paying for It, which catalogs a time in Brown's life when he decided to forego emotional relationships with women in favor of seeing a lot of prostitutes. Sounds like a great book to share with the whole family or an upcoming Disney Plus series. Brown wrote Ed the Happy Clown in the 80s when he was just starting out as a cartoonist. And I'm putting quotation marks around the word wrote because he made up a lot of it as he went along. And the early chapters weren't even supposed to be part of a longer cohesive narrative. They were just comic strips that Brown pulled together into little black and white self-published pamphlets called Yummy Fur as he was trying to become a professional cartoonist. So featuring the head of Ronald Reagan mounted on a penis, a never-ending stream of poop, a vampiress, and really racist depictions of pygmies, which I think Brown regrets, but I'm not entirely sure. To dive into the world of Ed the Happy Clown is to dive into Chester Brown's head and get an uncensored view of what was rattling around there when he was a young man, which is one of the reasons why I really enjoy it. So I'm Ryan Joe. Uh, and I'm Roman Zegel. And we're two guys who don't know much, but we know we love you. Speak for yourself. I hate all of you. And wait, wait. Actually, so, I hate everyone except for Auntie Pinky. So, Roman, you actually read this a few years ago, and then you forgot about it. And now you're reading it for a second time during a time when the world seems almost as surreal as Ed's world. So, you know, what was your perception of the book the first time? Because I know it's not the sort of material you normally would read for yourself versus, you know, now. Yeah, the, the first time... I think it was because of you, right? Halfway through reading this, I was like, why is this familiar? Then another few pages, I was like, yeah, I've totally read this. I know where this is going. So I looked it up on my phone and I saw a library hold from 2015 or 2016, which was kind of the beginning of our friendship, Ryan, when we would meet up for Bon Me or coffee in Manhattan when people could do that and, you know, argue about comic books. But I'd always walk away with one or two recommendations for some weird shit I should read. And the first impression back then was, wow, Ryan's got some weird but good taste. And it was an impression on you more than the book. And <laughs> I don't know if that's a compliment or not. But um, the second time around this last week, just one, two words kept popping into my head. Surrealism and improv. And that's that's what this book is for me. It's just surrealist improv. He's making it up as he goes. But like a great episode of Seinfeld, which we keep referencing on the show, it always comes back together. All the pieces come back together. And that he likes he comes up with something 
and he just has to see where it's going to go. And he somehow manages to tie the threads. This is a tough book to review because like the other books, even weirder ones like Luther Arkwright, the creator is at least trying to adhere to some of the conventions of storytelling and narrative and character development and structure and whatnot, explaining things that need to be explained. There is no such compulsion for Chester Brown. He is making it up as he goes along. It's just the narrative just swings in whatever direction he decides to take it at that moment. And, you know, I think that's that's a reason why it, it feels so surreal. Though, interesting thing about Chester Brown, in the end notes, he mentions surrealism but how he's never been really exposed to any of the surrealist artists. So, you know, he's kind of adopting the term without knowing whether Ed the Happy Clown actually adheres to it. So it's a, it's a, it's a difficult book to to review because, you know, a lot of what we would ordinarily put under the microscope just doesn't apply here. You either like it or you don't. I want it to be binary like that, but that's an oversimplified view of this book. And I, look, I haven't read any of Chester Brown's other works. And I want to say there's subtext to this book, but there isn't once you recognize it's improv. But what I what I found gratifying about the improv nature of it was it as a as a wannabe storyteller, for me it was well if he can do it I could do this. And and I don't mean that. I mean he makes it look easy when I it's clear that it's not to kind of how he digs himself out of these holes. But minus the fantastical elements of everything going on, be it interdimensional travel, vampires, among many other things, which I know we will get into. In certain moments, I think you just kind of had to turn your brain off for it and and just go with the flow. Yeah, I think Literally, you say, in some cases. <laughs> when you talk about subtext, it's a conscious effort to try to reflect in their fiction what's happening in the real world or to comment via fiction what's happening in the real world. And I think there is subtext here, but it's not so much subtext in terms of something that Chester Brown, you know, is noticing and wants to comment on. It's subtext in that a lot of what's here can be tied back to what anxieties like religious or sexual or whatever is happening in Chester Brown's life at that time. So there is subtext. It's just very, very intensely personal. For instance, on a more service level, the the poop thing, right? There's a character who just can't stop pooping. I mean, it's scatological humor. And the reason it's there, this is what Chester Brown in the writing in the end notes, is that uh, manga, Japanese comics were becoming really popular in North America at the time. And he had not read any manga, but he had heard that scatological humor poop was often used as a humorous vehicle in manga and so he decided to challenge himself and try to introduce poop not as something disgusting but as something kind of humorous in ed the happy clown and hence you have this character who can't stop pooping and there's a world where there's piles of poop everywhere and people have to step around it there's no reason for any of that to exist other than like chester brown wanting to challenge himself based off of a conception of japanese comics which by the way he never even read in the first place yeah but but with the poop thing starts out as an improv ridiculous vulgar thing and later on, when you show the interdimensional travel part of it, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but basically the guy, I can't believe I'm going to have recorded clips of me saying this, the guy pooping, it, it's his butt is an interdimensional portal where the waste 
from either the exact same universe, which that's something I want to talk about later, but or an alternate universe is coming out constantly. And again, because he goes with it, he chooses like, screw it, I'm going with this idea. He goes into the other dimension and literally reflects on society's waste habits. It's effectively a commentary on landfills. And I don't think he intended to go there, but once he had to dig himself out of the interdimensional hole, literally, so to speak, <laughs> he was like, well, fuck it. I'm going to comment on this. And he, he starts to comment on the excesses of our modern society. And I saw that. I don't remember it from the first time reading it, but I saw it this time and I just kind of raised an eyebrow and I was like, well done, Chester Brown. You, you had me at the poop, but <laughs> he kept going. You know, Roman, when you're just really bored and indulge yourself by going into whatever weird mental rabbit hole you you go down, mm-hmm, you, you know, mm-hmm. that's essentially what Chester Brown is doing here. He's just going down whatever weird mental rabbit hole he sees. And he's kind of attaching this narrative to it and stringing it all together, ultimately into a cohesive storyline, because you're totally right also about the whole thing with the poop, because it you know, in the in the end notes, he kind of describes how he started to think about, I think, using human waste as viable compost, and he started reading up on it. And so it became, I wouldn't say an area of focus for him, but it definitely kind of led him to a, to a much more, I guess, academic set or practical setting about that sort of stuff. It's a yes and. You never shut down yeah. the idea, and you just see where it's going to go. I have kind of two very direct questions, and since we're on the poop part, might as well start there. Is it the same dimension? I thought it was a circular thing. It was our universe kind of with a microscopic portal. Like our, yeah. Is it two universes or one? Two, because there's another Ronald, there's Ronald Reagan. No, I don't, I thought it was Ronald Reagan disappeared in the main universe. No, he doesn't. There's a line where they say Ronald Reagan would like to meet this miniature version of himself. So that would imply it's two different universes. Don't like the book then. Not as good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's another example of something that just kind of happened, right? In uh, the the universe where they're trying to dispose of the waste via the portal, uh, Ronald Reagan accidentally gets sucked through the portal. His head pops through his body remains in his world but for whatever reason his head becomes the head of ed the happy clown's penis and so for a while ed has this really unfortunate sidekick as you as it as it were that's one way of putting it the head of ronald reagan attached to his penis and you know i wouldn't say offering advice but occasionally you know commenting on the actions at hand and also making ed sort of a target for scientists who want to study why the head of Ronald Reagan is uh, is on his penis. That isn't really an example of subtext, because initially when I first read this, I kind of thought, all right, this is, he's, he's saying something about Ronald Reagan, but in the end notes, he confessed he had no idea who the hell Ronald Reagan was, really was. I mean, besides being the president of the United States, had no idea what the guy's policies are. And he just needed somebody high profile to put on the head of a penis, and it just so happened to be Ronald Reagan. And Brown later says he started researching Reagan later on, and now he's come to the conclusion that Reagan is the second best U.S. president, right next to Calvin Coolidge. Well, I I think when he wrote it, he didn't live through the moment we were living through. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting because it's a book that seems so political at first because Reagan is such a prominent character. His head is attached to a penis. And how can that not be a commentary? And yet it isn't a commentary. It's just... No, it's just just a ludicrous thing. Here's a pop culture figure. Yeah. I I want to shift gears a little bit. Um, Yeah. Do you think Chester or... or Sorry, do you think Ed or Josie is the main character of this book? I think Ed started out as the main character and then he realized Josie was much more interesting and has a personality and because Ed is very as a character Ed is not a good character I think he's just an observer he's he's just yeah things happen to him things happen to him right and I I think initially Jester Brown did think of Ed as being this recurring character who could keep showing up and having these zany adventures and all these stories would spiral around Ed but I think he kind of realized that Ed doesn't have that that capacity in fact even though he's called Ed the Happy Clown, the only time he shows up in clown makeup is really in the in the beginning. And pretty soon afterwards, like in the first you know, couple of pages, his makeup is washed off and he's just some dude. And then Josie, though, is actually an interesting person because she has drives and motivations and you know, ambitions and you know, the need for for revenge. And there are consequences to her actions, which are pretty simply. She she winds up in hell. Versus Ed, you know, it's just this constant cycle of things happening to him. You probably call it out the right way. I think he found her more interesting. He at first, and and I think he made her up as he went, and he could just Mm. explore more interesting things with her. She's in much more control of the world, even though terrible things also happen to her. If anything, it's a mirror. Terrible things happen to Ed, and he just has to go with it and suffer and terrible things happen to Josie and she fights back and she yeah. really uh, I mean I don't want to say disturbing or offensive but you know there's a lot of nudity there's a lot of sex there's also a lot of poop but with Ed it's an absurdist fourth grade humor version of it it's poop jokes with Josie there is this oversexualized nature to her she at first is abused and effectively murdered and later she realizes she has a form of power and she uses that power to her advantage now she does bad things with it which is why spoiler alert she goes to hell at the end but her story is more complex and uh, and i can't remember the name of her boyfriend with the missing hand yeah he as uh, what i did read out of notes and various reviews of the book is chester puts himself in that character more than anyone else in this book yeah, I definitely want to get to that. But Josie, when we first meet her, she's basically just Chet's girlfriend slash prostitute who he meets up with to have sex with. You know, it's only kind of later on in the in the story where she develops her own agency. And it's very interesting how at the end, you know, I guess that agency gives her a lot more power as a character where she actually has somebody with opinions. And in fact, she's really kind of the only character aside from Chet who has a who has opinions and drives and whose opinions and drives actually get her to to take action. And I was also thinking about the ending when she winds up in hell. You know, Brown's comment on that in the end notes is that her compulsion for revenge dooms her. And to me, it was an interesting mindset that her sins were so great that it condemned her to hell because to me, all she did was get revenge on the man who, who murdered her. And the last shot 
of Ed the Happy Clown is of Josie literally burning in hell. It's a very dark note to end on. Well, and you I know, feel cons- like it's it's kind of not. I don't want to say it's not fair, but Ed gets a sort of happy ending, and Josie gets a terrible ending, and that kind of sucks. Because yeah, Ed just uh, maybe- let the world happen to him. And to your point, Josie had agency. Maybe that's what it is. Ed's ending. Oh, I guess we could call it neutral in this world. It's hard to know if it's happy because he has been abducted by, you know, he has had his penis transplanted unwillingly. Though, you know, arguably he does now have a better member and that and, Ronald yeah, Reagan is no longer attached Ron- to it. Yeah, right. have Ronald Reagan. It's fine. You know, but he has been sort of abducted by a woman who basically wants to just rape him, which already happened, by the way, in the book. So, I mean, it's arguable that he has... A happy ending but i guess maybe it's that his life continues whereas josie's life does not i mean she's like basically condemned to hell for all eternity and not only that but stuck with the person who murdered her so it's it's actually a very brutal ending for her and you're right it's discomforting because it doesn't seem deserved i appreciate a good ending like seriously an ending where you try to resolve and you try to make a statement Versus uh, to be continued, or there's not going to be an Ed the Happy Clown too. It's over. I saw. Yeah, I, I don't I appreciate. He he took a swing, and he made, uh, and that's more than you can say about most a lot of creators. Yeah, you know, I can't really say that it's a it's a criticism or that it doesn't work because again, like a lot of Ed the Happy Clown, very kind of reflective. I think of Chester Brown's personal philosophy and ideas of life at that time in the eighties. But at the same time, that worldview to me is a little bit uncomfortable. So one thing I really enjoyed, and I actually almost savored, I got excited when it would happen, is the TV show Adventures in Science Mm. (laughs) that was recurring. And it was, you know, a TV show, not quite like Mr. Wizard for all of you Nickelodeon fans out there, but it was, what I liked about Adventures in Science is it was kind of a, almost like a commercial break as you went through the main plot of the book with Josie and Ed, it was almost an explanation of this world's absurd beliefs and how they viewed the world. And I think later on, they they bring the cast of Adventures in Science into the actual narrative, and you find out that they're very homophobic, kind of terrible people. But it was just such a fun distraction from a book that was already a fun distraction. Like, you thought you had this weird and zany plot going on, and then you just kind of got to get a little bit of world building almost with, with adventures in science. You're breaking the narrative and that always kind of adds a really nice variety. But you're right. It kind of gives you a look up at the wider world around Ed the Happy Clown. There are other moments when he does that, but it almost feels sort of arbitrary. For instance, these aliens that come out down in the beginning to suck up Ed and his buddy Christian. It feels like he's just that. I mean, he definitely is making. In fact, that's not even supposed to be part of the Ed the Happy Clown. That was originally its own comic. Then he just kind of cut and paste those characters in there. But the recurrence of adventures of science in science makes it feel more deliberate. Like this is actually purposely part of the world. And then, of course, the way that that is expanded later on, as you mentioned, into these into these characters who are studying the portal, incredibly homophobic, you know, they, they, they become much more part of the fabric of the world. It gave us another lens to understand how Chester Brown viewed the world. All of these views, be they commentary on other people or reflections of himself, 
it's kind of hard to do it with a character-driven narrative, right? But when you have almost like this third-party commentary, which was Adventures in Science, it was like, oh, okay, he's clearly saying something that isn't veiled through character drama. In old image comics, when you want to see them making fun of CNN or in modern day comics, when you want to see them making fun of Fox News, you see the talking heads. A lot of the world building also, you know, like the vampire hunters, for instance. Not enough of the vampire hunters. I wanted no, more of the vampire hunters. Right. It's, it's sort of, it actually kind of reminds me of a lot of like these David Lynch movies, like, like Mulholland Drive, where yeah. certain characters might come in for a very brief moment and make an impression. And then Lynch kind of realizes I have no where else to go with these characters and he just sort of stops using them and that that's kind of reminded me of you know these vampire hunters who come in for no reason other than that Josie's a vampire and they do they have like one or two things that they do and then they literally just vanish from the narrative but the thing also about those vampire hunters is brown mentioned that they're related to you know marvel comics characters and so sort of like Adventures in Science, you can see like all of these different pop cultural influences that Chester Brown grew up around, Marvel comics, science shows, all these old, you know, horror serials, and how they all kind of come together into this weird hodgepodge that is that is Ed the Happy Clown. Can you explain the hand thing to me? Because I barely understood it the second time around. <laughs> like, well, okay. There's this murderous hand. But is it from the 13th century? And oh, okay. What's the narrative of the hand? So, so it's. Look, I I don't think it's really possible to fully explain it because, <laughs> like again, it's a lot its of this subplot. Stuff, it's its own subplot. A lot of the stuff is just made up as he goes along. So the character Shet loses his hand, and so it's not from gets, the 13th century. It's not, but he's obsessed with a saint called Saint Justin, who is not a real saint at all. And in the narrative of Chester Brown, this man, this peasant named Justin, is caught masturbating by his wife, and his wife chops off his hand with an axe. And so he kind of rises to sainthood because of that for some reason. And so Chet, who in the modern times comes from a very religious family, is familiar with St. Justin. And he and his hand, it gets removed by, you know, one of there's no real narrative reason for his hand to be removed. He's removed, <laughs> still back on. And because he's obsessed with St. Justin, who I guess St. Justin in Chester Brown's narrative says, you know, you have to cut off from yourself the thing that is making you sin. And so basically that's the motivation for him murdering Josie, the pros, you know, the prostitute who eventually She's making becomes him a vampire. Right. She's making him sin. Or that's, that's his rationale. And so he kills her. And so basically that's the purpose of the hand within this narrative. It basically leads to the murderer of Josie. After that, it never really becomes a factor again, except until like much later on when, when Chet meets Ed again and, and kind of, you know, he thinks that Ed was the one who stole his hand. If you're listening, don't try to make sense of this. It really doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense. It's a whole bunch of different narrative elements that could kind of stitch together in the most haphazard Frankenstein manner. And the result is a very surreal narrative, but don't look for any, you know, real logic that you can adhere to. When I was in college, maybe, one of my friends and I, we would do effectively post-it note comics, literally drawing panels on post-it notes. And 
there were some moderate narratives or character developments of, you know, creating characters of ourselves, going to shows and whatnot. But that was the vibe I got from the art. I think this book was encouraging to say, why can't I chase my own stories down? You know, rather than trying to literally write them out, flesh them out, try so hard to piece something together, why not just start drawing and see where it goes? Upon reading it the second time and reading a little bit um, of the backstory and his notes about what he was trying to do, I mean, these were literally stapled together photocopies distributed around Canada originally. A lot of what makes this unique is the fact that it is so uncensored and very, very un-PC in a lot of places. Like he has this, this panel where Reagan, now attached to a penis, is vomiting and it's not clear whether it's vomit or semen coming out of his mouth. You know, like stuff like that. It's sort of the stuff you'd actually see out of out of 4chan. You know, that sort of joke almost. But of course, in the 80s, it's probably a lot more, it's a lot more, more rare. Which, which actually kind of brings me to my other point, because I think we have to address it, is how did you feel about some of the racist stuff? I mean, like the pygmies, because it is racist, right? He He creates these... Pig, he, he refers to them as pygmies. They're kind of shipped in from a third world. They're these little uh, dwarves with sharp teeth who literally say things like ooga booga, which Brown has said that he he regrets. And, you know, flipping through his end notes, you, you do realize that there's some anxiety that he has, that he's definitely aware of his depiction of the pygmies. But then he later tries to justify it by referencing the the historian paul johnson who have you read paul johnson i haven't but which is what i'd say about the pygmies the first time i read it a few years ago in my own ignorance i was like okay these are weird little creatures where are they from i don't know i didn't get that there was a cultural offense being made and that's dangerous right but if anything because this entire book is satire i don't know it, it's it's a really thin line to kind of dance on or needle to thread or whatever you want to say. But if you want to look at it and give him the benefit of the doubt, which you can't because he even says he was wrong in doing this, you'd be like, he's just commenting on the racist tropes and how terrible. And he's, it's a literally a satire of the racist satire. That's what it feels like to me, but it's clear he was going somewhere else with it when he originally created it. Yeah, I don't think it was a satire because I think it was just like they they were just characters that he came up with at the last minute and tossed into one of his cartoons and he kept using them. It's, you know, the way they're drawn, you know, they actually just look like little miniature demons. There's, you know, the, the comic is in black and white, so you don't know the, like the color of their skin, for instance. They don't necessarily have any any features that would make you think that they are racist caricatures. They could, for all intents and purposes, simply be trolls. But I think yeah, they are referenced but, as but, being but, but at the from the third world. The, yeah, the beginning yeah. of the book, the government says they're flying them in. So it's clearly how yeah. the Western government views as our current president says shithole countries you know like it's kind of ah, if you could have you could have plausible deniability if the moment by which they were introduced did not reference where they came from and the only reason you know that these are not little demon creatures is because he references that where they came from at the very beginning yeah. so if you edited it, that panel out you could get away with it yeah 
yeah, possibly. Or you could just say we, they came from another world or something like that. But even then, you know, I think the racial connections would still sort of be unavoidable, right? You kind of like fly these creatures in from another world. They speak in this ooga booga. Is it, yeah, ooga. is it code for something, right? Exactly. And then you have a whole bunch of white people hunting them down. I also was just really interested in, in Chester Brown's confrontation of that. You know, when he writes these end notes, I think it's probably about 2010 around that time. And, you know, I kind of mentioned that he uses a quote from Paul Johnson to justify it. So who's Paul um, Johnson? So Paul Johnson is a historian. He wrote, he was known for a book called Modern Times, which came out in the late 1980s. And it was a hugely received, well-received book or well-read book. Uh, it's kind of put him on the map. And the only reason I know this is because it was one of the textbooks that was assigned to me when I was in high school, when I was a high school senior. So basically covers the world up until the 1980s. So hugely ambitious. But the thing about Paul Johnson is he's beloved by a lot of right wing people like like Newt Gingrich is a big Paul Johnson fan. So you kind of, yeah, so you kind of see and you know what, I wish I could point to specific examples in the text why he raises the ire of of the left and why he's such a why he's almost deified by the right but i you know i literally read it when i was 17 so i can't remember but he's a big adherent to like law and order and judeo-christian ideas and he's definitely against like moral relativism stuff like that so it's just interesting to me that chester brown is kind of looking to paul johnson to make his depiction of the pygmies which you know is racist well what so what's funny is like, it, okay. it, it depends on the lens by which you're reading it right so if, if you read it I, mean, I don't think anyone on the right would be reading this and entertained but if you're reading it from the right you can be like oh yeah this chester brown guy he he agrees with paul johnson just like me if you're reading it from the left and you just assume chester brown because i don't know he's an indie comic guy from canada you assume he's on your side you'd be like yeah he's totally making fun of that clown that newt gingrich subscribes to so yeah well i mean knowing the origins of the creator almost we we tend to infer our own belief on top of it because it'd be easy for me to be like it's a satire of a character well i don't think we can say that because he specifically cites paul johnson in his defense and this is in the end notes this isn't in no no i agree i agree with you but i was saying if there were no end notes and you just wanted yeah okay the author was like you i honestly be like yeah, that's kind of racist. Ah, uh, it's because it's so ridiculous the use of these pygmies. So you read it and you're like, this is clearly satire. This whole book has defecation and all these other weird fucking things. You're just like, oh, and here's a racist trope. I know he's making fun of the racist trope. Yeah, well, and then you read it, and then you read in the end notes that he wasn't. And you know, it's 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 almost interesting how the justification of it is sort of you know you you kind of like come up in your mind, you know, some sort of vindication for him. Like, oh, no, 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 he's just satirizing these ideas. He's not really, you know, and I don't think he's promoting them either. I think he, you know, when I say racist, I don't mean like he's being maliciously racist. It's just something, it's like an oversight. It's sort of like this. It's not an oversight. You know, in the oversight we live in. He wrote this in the 80s, though. And oversight, okay, go on. Through the lens of the current era, we're looking at and reinterpreting previous things, be it blackface or whatever, good intention or bad intention don't matter anymore. I hate to say that, but it's 
just because he ignorantly was creating something that was racist doesn't make it any less wrong, I guess. So, you know, the minstrel and blackface in an old black and white movie from the 40s. Just because they Got didn't it. know any better, does that make it any better? Yeah. And I'm, not, I'm, not can- I'm not, again, I'm not cancel culturing this necessarily. No. Yeah. Because we read it. <laughs> we read it. <laughs> Burn but this say- book. Burn this book. When I say oversight, I don't mean, you know, that don't, That actually, that's probably the wrong word because the, the word oversight seems to excuse it. And I don't mean it in that way. I meant the word oversight in a way that is sort of like this casual racism where he's not trying to be racist, <laughs> but he's just, he's just completely unaware of the complete dehumanization in his depiction, in the way he kind of just demonizes them. And it's something that's born more out of ignorance, I think, than, you know... Than I, I do trying think... to be malicious, but that so that's what I meant. So I think you know you're kind of approaching it from a, like a right or wrong standpoint, and I agree with you that it is wrong. But I'm just trying to kind of figure out like why he would make this depiction. I do think it's funny. At some point in the next few weeks, we're releasing an episode on this other podcast on race, where we're talking to a VC about racism, and we talk about the idea of there's a spectrum to just calling someone a racist. I do think, you know, on a spectrum, there is kind of a line down the middle. If it's a scale scale of 0 to 10, somewhere around 4.9 to 5.1 is that line. But it is a spectrum. And you can still be racist or have, you can still say or do racist things, perhaps unconsciously, maybe like Chester Brown did, and not be a racist who wants to kill all minorities, so to speak. And so... I do. The more I think on this, and I've, I spend more time now because of the world we're living in, thinking about this, I do think racist beliefs or racist expressions are a spectrum of unconscious to conscious, right? And we're all of sin. I, by no means, am not saying I'm not racist. I've never had a racist thought. We all have. The question is, what do you do with it? Do you acknowledge it? Do you understand it? Some of us, we've read uh, in Superman versus the Klan, right? One of the first books we read. There's this character who is raised in a, a racist family and has racist beliefs, but then he comes to question and grapple with them. And I'd rather have that, I guess. And it sounds like, I didn't finish reading the end notes, Ryan, but it sounds like Chester Brown does grapple with those later on after creating this. Yeah, he definitely does. In fact, he actually says in the end notes, he really regrets that Uga Booga language. Again, you were talking about the spectrum of, of, of being a racist, but there's also the spectrum of in which to, to which you're regretful. And yeah. so on the one hand, he's sort of like, these depictions of, of the pygmies is this sort of this colonialist depiction showing them as these inhuman demons. And then he kind of like falls back on this Paul Johnson quote. I'll just read it since I've been referencing it for so long. This is from Chester Brown's endnotes. For what it's worth, I'll add that I now accept Paul Johnson's contention that quote, colonialism covered such a varied multiplicity of human arrangements that it is doubtful whether it describes anything specific at all, end quote. And Brown is using that as a shield for criticism that his depiction of the pygmies is old colonial imaging. It almost feels like he's trying to throw up the semantic argument to hide behind a, a very real criticism that his depiction of these people was, you know, inherently dehumanizing. So it's an excuse. But on the other hand, there's a very definite 
regret when he says, I really should not have used that Uga Booga language. In reading these endnotes, you almost feel him still wrestling with that depiction, the extent to which he should just own up to it and be like, I was wrong. Versus the extent to which he's like, no, 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 it's okay. You know, it's not really colonialist because <laughs> colonialism has no meaning, you know? Hey, well, on the spectrum, right, of repent, you're coming short. Like at the end of the day, just say you were wrong. <laughs> Don't make excuses. Just just, just own it. You, you, This was like, this is almost 40 years ago, man. Just be like... Shouldn't have done it. Maybe thirty years. Yeah, ago. I mean, you can contextualize it, but don't make excuses. I guess is what I would say. <laughs> like, lead with "I'm sorry, I was wrong," but here's where I got it from. Here, can't can't you understand how I might have come here? Do you have time to do like one more like like Brown's relation with women? Because it just feels and I and I'm, uh, you, you know, know what's I'm funny. Also, I, I, I want I wanted to go there. I wanted to go there because oh, let's talk. Okay, let's talk about that. And and by the way, there's the added weight of him writing two books on prostitution. One called his memoir, Paying For It, where he decides he just wants to forego all female relationships and just have, you know, just have his needs satisfied by going through to see a series of prostitutes. And then he has a more recent book that came out in 2016. I forgot what it is called, but it is about, it is basically advocating for the legalization of, of prostitution. I can't speak through the context of his other work, because I haven't read it. What I can say is he was a young man when he wrote these, and I'm not making excuses. And I don't know what his views are later. But yeah, what, the one thing that really bugs me, and because Josie, I think, was an amazing character who develops agency and is flawed and ultimately, un unfortunately, gets less than she deserves but she's literally naked through the damn book. And there's moments when she is taking agency and she does put on clothes, but there's moments when she's like literally just walking around hallways. And so she's like this, I mean, we were talking about some of like the, the pinup fantasies of the books we read as a kid. And it feels like he's doing that with her, not just in the things she does, but she's literally strutting around naked the whole book. And it, it's not the endless pooping. It's not the pygmies that gave me pause about, hey, Chester, come on, man. Seriously? It was that. It was like, do you really need to parade her around this way? This character you're literally giving agency to? And she's the only mm -hmm. person he did it with. And it made me wonder if he's almost obsessed with her as a character. But he did say he wanted to draw like a very sexy female vampire. I mean, that was his motivation for, for, doing, for doing Josie. And I think I kind of find just in this, you know, just in hearing you talk, I think I kind of realized why I was so uncomfortable with that ending. Cause I, I said earlier, it made me uncomfortable and I'm not, I wasn't entirely sure why here's why I think it makes me uncomfortable. I know that Brown, the reason she's burning in hell Brown says is because she acts out her revenge on this guy. But I guess you see so much, many other atrocious things happening to people in this book, like the little miniature scientist who comes from a world full of, homosexuals and as a result everyone pulls out a gun and shoots him i mean that's almost that's played as a joke even though they're murdering him but those characters are never punished in any way shape or form josie is the one character who develops agency she's like she she's like i want i want revenge i'm gonna get it she's the one who has her own drives and her own needs and acts on them and it seems like 
ultimately she's punished for that, right? She's the only character who we see burning in hell at the end. And so it feels like she's being punished for being a woman who has agency. And I don't know if that's really what's going through Chester Brown's head, but the way it's set up, that's what makes me a little bit uncomfortable. The fact that she's really the, the, and really, I mean, it's, it's the ending is actually very serious, right? She's, she's burning in hell wrapped in the arms of the man who murdered her. It's a horrible fate. And and again, it's it, it's not fair. Why is to be fair? Why her? Chester Brown. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, he punishes. I mean, you know, maybe it's an inversion. I, hmm, let me think through this. I was going to say, Ed the Clown is this punished, tragic character throughout the whole book, and to your point, he doesn't really have a happy ending, but he kind of relatively does. <laughs> and does Josie have? an okay beginning and therefore she is it just this inversion of someone has a sh- a shitty life turns into an okay life and the other major character goes the other way is that it yeah, uh, yeah well no it's not i mean it's not just in comparison to what happens to ed it's just you know there's i guess there's so many awful things that happen to people in this book but it's all kind of treated as a joke why so josie does something awful which well i'm arguably she murders a guy who's a killer why is that punishable by going by a lifetime in hell wrapped up in the arms of that very same killer? You know, why does she have the same fate that he has? So that's, I think, and I don't think that's a commentary on, you know, you know, how, how women are treated poorly or, you know, I, I mean, if I guess if it is, I'm, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't see how he's commenting on it. Yeah. So I, I think that, I think that, that that's what it is. It wasn't necessarily Josie in comparison to Ed is Josie in comparison to everybody else who do awful things, but nothing really bad happens to them. And that's what made me uncomfortable. And that's why I was sort of wondering about Chester Brown's relationship with, with women and, you know, and how he views those, those relationships. But yeah, I don't know. It's not, it's not, it's not, there's not, there's nothing there that, that, you, you, there's no easy answer from from this comic. It's hard to it's hard to kind of get the full answers to anyone's psyche. You really can't get the full answers to anyone's psyche just simply by reading a work of fiction. I think that's that's a myth. But I do think, and this is the danger to putting things out in the world, be it a comic book or a podcast, is you're giving people more of a sampling from which to infer, and it's a dangerous thing. Right. Especially when you unleash your id and you go full on improv surrealism like this book. If you only read this book or you or frankly, I was just looking up on Wikipedia. If you read the four or five books that he's made and you decide to infer a lot from this artist, what would you think of Chester Brown? Oh, he's a complicated guy. I mean, but that's that's just that's a cop on answer, isn't it? He's. He's, you know, I mean, he's, he's really smart. I think he's, he's made a lot of different, he's, he's evolved a lot and shifted his worldview throughout his, his, his lifetime. I mean, it's clear that he had, and he says this in the end notes, he's had a very complex relationship with, with religion. He came from a very observant Protestant family. He now identifies as a libertarian, which I mean, it could, was one of those, you know, identifications that means pretty much anything you know like the Koch brothers are technically you know i think they identify as libertarians but i wouldn't put like chester brown and charles Koch in the same category 
I think all of us have weird, dark, twisted thoughts, and we're not willing to admit them. And I'm not calling him brave, but he was willing to put them down on paper and see where they took him. You know, he okay, was willing that... to, to go down the rabbit hole. Yeah, that's what I was actually wrestling with. Is this brave? Why Why wouldn't you call it brave? I, th- I think brave no, but almost feels brave, like a lot. Brave implies something else. Is it brave to put something out there? Again, be it a podcast, a blog post, a New York Times op-ed, an indie graphic novel, photocopied and stapled and distributed through Toronto. Putting yourself out there is brave. Calling him brave versus other people or calling this work brave, that I don't know about. Mm. You know? So yeah. yeah I mean, sure. I, it's, the person who chooses to create is braver than the person who does not. I think but, it's brave. But, 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 but brave, be careful not to imply something positive or negative, I guess, is what I'd say from it. Yeah, because brave There's is something altruistic about it. Yeah. It, it, brave is inherently laudatory, right? It's, it's, you know, somebody who does something brave is meant to be praised. And there is a bravery, I think, in putting out a, you know, c- completely un PC comic and something that could really destroy your career but at the same time you also have to understand like the context in which he was writing this he was a young creator he had no career to be destroyed he was just trying to get noticed and it's sort of like uh william shakespeare like when he wrote the tragedy of titus andronicus and in that in that play titus the title character kills tamara's children and feeds them to her and a lot of that was just shakespeare being like shit man this other playwright kit marlowe is getting all the press. I need to do something crazy that are going to, that's going to get people to notice. And, and I kind of feel like Ed, the happy clown is almost in that same vein. He's this Chester Brown is this unknown, unheralded cartoonist with a very limited fan following. He's not sure whether he's going to make it or not. And he just needs to do something that's, that people are going to notice that's going to shake people. And so he just, you know, comes up with the most outlandish stuff. He goes where his, it takes him and he puts it all on paper. You know, well, the irony like he, is, the irony is, 30, 40 years later, I mean, this thing has been published multiple times. I think the copy, this is like the third edition that we're reading. So many people are still talking about this. So say what you will, he did make us notice. Yeah. But anyway, so hey, if you're still listening to this podcast, thanks for sticking with us through Ed the Happy Clown. That, that like, like, like Ed the Happy Clown itself, that conversation went all over the place, but I think it was interesting. So what's going to happen next week? Well, fortunately, Roman can tell you. Next week, we are going to talk about the best we can do. And I'm not talking about what we can do on this podcast. I'm actually talking about the book, The Best We Can Do by T. Bowie. It's an illustrated memoir about a young woman's journey from Vietnam to America. I think this might actually be the first time we review or we talk about a nonfiction book. And it's not just about the refugee journey, but it's about the journey of her as a parent, comparing the life of her, the life of her parents in Vietnam to the life of her in America. It's This is a serious one. And Decided to have a serious friend join. Uh, my co-hostess with the mostest from my other podcast, Modern Minorities, Sharon Lee Tony's going to be joining us. And it's going to be a, a deeper, more serious, very special episode of Quarantine Comics. Oh, man. I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to everything, though. Eternally optimistic, I am. <laughs> you need to raise your standards. <laughs> <laughs>
All right, well, thanks so much for listening. And again, if you have a recommendation, hit us up at qtdcomics at gmail.com. We'll see you next week. <laughs>